0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: There's a lot to be said for living in the country. Far from the maddening crowd, you can appreciate the beauty of the Australian bush and its wide open skies. But there is a downside, because for many people living in regional Australia, having a health issue can really undo your lifestyle. Although there are programmes to help with the financial burden of travelling considerable distances for essential health medical services, not everyone is eligible. 77-year-old Bob is one of those people that slips through the cracks in the South Australian system, which means he has travelled over 65,000 Ks in the past three years just to stay alive. His wife Jan says it's simply not fair. It's it's about equity, it's about fairness to country people,
2: really. It's making us a little bit more in line with the city because in the city, when Bob did his um, trial of haemodialysis, we got taxi vouchers. And that that just doesn't add up, that we
1: can't get anything when we've got the huge distance and the cost. I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wajak country, Pratt. But first to the mining town of Broken Hill in Outback New South Wales where workers at Consolidated Broken Hill Resources have been told this morning they will no longer be required with some staff finishing on the job at the end of the working day. The staff work at the historic Rasp mine right in the centre of Broken Hill that's made up of underground operations some of which date back to the earliest days of mining in Broken Hill and that's right back to the 1880s. The news has come as a shock to staff and our reporter Bill Ormond is in Broken Hill. Now Bill, was this news out of the blue? It seems like it was.
3: Yeah, it certainly was out of the blue for the workers as well as the union. Now we heard that there was some executives from CBH Resources in town last week, but we were sort of unclear why and what they were doing. And then last night at about 8pm, the workers in the union were just sort of given a text message saying there'd be meetings tomorrow at 6am, 7am and 8am. They didn't have any idea what was going to be discussed. So they sort of went in blind and And some of those people who entered the meetings um, came out of them without a job and others were told that they wouldn't be required beyond uh, November 30th and there would be redundancies on offer. And so there was sort of a great deal of, not necessarily panic, but there was just a a great deal of surprise by, I think, a lot of people um, considering up until this point, I think uh, things had been ticking along quite nicely.
1: Certainly a shock. How many staff do we know that it will affect...
3: Um, roughly somewhere in the vicinity of about 200 workers so there's somewhere between 170 and 190 workers at CBH mines so the guys that go underground and some of the truck drivers and some of the blast um, blast workers as well and then you've got contractors on top of that as well who, who will be heavily impacted by this and, and will unfortunately um, no longer have a job as well and then you've got to factor in I suppose the flow-on effect to the community and the city as a whole and I guess it will remain to be seen what um, impact that is as well.
1: The mine is majority owned by Japanese company Toho Zinc now. What do they have to say? Obviously, people in town before, and there is significance to this mine because it is at the heart of the city.
3: Yes, certainly. Um, we actually haven't heard anything from Toho Zinc. We've heard from um, their sort of daughter company, CBH Resources, via a statement um, that declined a number of interviews for the time being. Um, but the statement basically outlined the fact that their parent company, Toho Zinc, at this stage, um, they just they just weren't able to um, invest and continue to invest in, in, the, um, in the operations, in the southern operations that in the middle of Broken Hill, there, in, in the line of load, um, it's an iconic sort of structure. In the middle of, you can't miss it if you come into Broken mm-hmm. Hill. Anyone who's been to Broken Hill would know exactly what I'm talking about. This big, um, oh, trying not to get off locals offside slag heap in the middle of town, um, but but it's iconic and, and and as you said, it's right in the heart of the city and they are actively seeking um, a new owner. It's on the market. It has been on the market for quite some time, and it was valued last year when zinc prices were quite high. Um, those have tailed off a bit, um, but they're, they're still solid enough, and so they're hoping um, that they are able to find someone. That's CBH. We Again, we haven't heard from Toho, um, but other than the fact that they're just not in a position to invest anymore,
1: Bill, as you said, two hundred jobs, two hundred men and women affected by this, plus their families. And um, when you spoke to Broken Hill Mayor Tom Kennedy, what did he have to say about that?
3: Well, he was fairly shocked. He was in line with the union and also the workers. He was really surprised that this sort of came out came out of the blue. And and I think as a mining city and a mining community with As you mentioned earlier, such a rich history of mining. Um, It really came as a shock. Um, You can have a listen. I think you've got some audio. Uh, Look, uh, I really feel for the workers. There's nothing worse than being told at short notice that uh, their jobs uh, will be finishing in 24, some earlier. They've been offered voluntary uh, redundancy.
1: Broken Hill Mayor Tom Kennedy speaking to our reporter Bill Orman. Bill, thanks very much for talking to Australia Wide.
3: No, thank you very much for having me.
4: You're listening to ABC Australia Wide.
1: Let's head to the small town of Marlborough in central Queensland, a rural town like many others where the local population is dwindling. Back in 2017, the Australian Defence Force attempted to acquire properties there to expand its military training area, and some farmers took them up on the deal and sold their land. The ADF's facility is capable of hosting large military exercises, often involving overseas defence forces. Now, six years later, some of the remaining graziers are accusing the ADF of being a bad neighbour. Jasmine Hines has this story. This is our place on this side. This is all army on this other side.
5: As Barbara Bowman drives along her cattle property she points out her neighbour's new fence lined with no trespassing and danger warning signs. Never in a million years I thought this would happen just yeah just really sad for us. Ms Bowman runs 1600 head of cattle with her husband and family on their property north of Marlborough in central Queensland between Rockhampton and Mackay. Her neighbours sold their place a few years ago and the Bowmans are now surrounded by land owned by the Australian
6: Defence Force. Once we were just a little peaceful place that we had with five or six cars, might have went across this road once. Now you've got 80, 90 trucks a day. Marlborough locals won a battle with the army six years ago
5: when the ADF tried to compulsorily acquire land to expand its Shoalwater Bay training area. After months of pushback and a media campaign, defence made it so only willing properties would be bought. But many still left, while others,
6: like Miss Bowman, decided to stay. We've lost four families, five families actually up this road, which is really sad because they are nice young families with kids that went to school flow and effect of that it's just yeah not good for the community it affects your school bus it affects your mail run because the mail used to come up here to these families so that's lost income it affects your pony club in town it'll affect your ses it'll affect your rural fire brigade and it just goes on and on and on so it's of no benefit to our little community it's just really sad the way it's impacted us and it'll never be the same Cause the army are going to be here forever, so this impact is just really long lasting. The ADF says
5: representatives visited the region near the training area in August and October to talk to neighbours who have expressed concerns about the expansion area. It's established a Shoalwater Bay expansion area working group to address ongoing concerns. Rodney Jacobson runs a few thousand head of cattle on his 8,000 hectare property south of Marlborough.
4: Yeah, well, we've been here for about 14 years and when the compulsory acquisition, the first question I asked one of the army defence people is I said, tell me where you can find a, a property with highway frontage 70 kilometres to a major town with two meatworks access and of land of this, this type. And he just shrugged his shoulders.
5: Mr. Jacobson says living with Defence as his neighbour has made it more challenging to run his business with a lack of communication and unwillingness to work with him to backburn, maintain fencing, and return escaped cattle.
4: Defence is full of really good soldiers, but not too many uh, are cattlemen.
5: Mr. Jacobson says recently he asked Defence to help him backburn along their shared fence line, which was ignored. Since then, he says a fire jumped his fence and burnt through nearly 400 hectares of land. Defence says fires in Shoalwater Bay in September were an unintentional result of a training exercise and it worked with the Rural Fire Service to protect neighbouring properties. It says Defence also has a comprehensive bushfire mitigation program. Mr Jacobson says all he wants is better and more open communication.
4: Just just to, well, to do with our neighbours, mate, just to get some communication, you know, like for them to appreciate that we have to survive here as well and we have to make things work. And it's not just all about them. You know, we need, need um, a bit of respect coming back our way from the other side of the fence.
1: That's Rodney Jacobson, a grazier who lives near Marlborough, and Jasmine Hines was the reporter there. If you live rurally and need to travel considerable distances for essential medical services, there are programmes to help alleviate some of the financial burden associated with transport. But the strict eligibility requirement for these programmes means that some patients fall through the cracks and are unable to access the help they need. From regional South Australia, reporter Megan McLaughlin has this story. In the heart of Melrose,
0: the mighty green mountain, Remarkable announces your arrival in this southern Flinders Ranges town. Renowned for its network of mountain bike trails, this is the type of place that farmers will stop traffic to move a mob of sheep. And locals will cross over the road to have a chat. It's here that 77-year-old Bob Moulton and his wife Jan have called home for over 60 years. Dan is a born and bred local, and Bob loves it here too. But his health issues means he's had to travel over 65,000 kilometres in the past three years just to stay alive.
7: I have um, kidney disease. I don't have any kidney function, in fact. And uh, as a result, I have to be on dialysis three times a week at Port Augusta, uh, which means travelling um, about 80 k's, I suppose, um, every other day. Um, And uh, I'm looked after really, really well at the renal unit, a wonderful mob of nurses. And uh, we're very grateful for the treatment that I'm receiving. So I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the treatment I'm getting from the people at Port Augusta Hospital.
0: Port Augusta Hospital is over 68 kilometres from home Which means Bob has clocked up almost 400 kilometres, driving every week for his treatment. But he doesn't qualify for any travel subsidies. Under the South Australian Patient Assistant Travel Scheme, or PATS, people have to live a minimum of 100 kilometres one way for treatment to be eligible. As the cost of fuel has gone up, it's hit hard.
7: Well we get pretty tired uh, and it probably costs us a full tank of fuel each week, which is a, with current uh, prices about um, $100 a week. So, uh, you know, there is a, a cost, a dent in our revenue, so to speak. So it takes about a best part of an hour to get up there, 45 minutes, 50 minutes I suppose, It takes about 20 minutes to hook me into the machine, uh, the dialysis machine. Then it's a four-hour treatment, and then another 20 minutes or so to uh, take the lines out of my arm and and get me on my way. South
0: Australia's scheme underwent a review in January, increasing the travel subsidy from 16 cents per kilometre travelled to 32 cents. This brought South Australia in line with other states. But unlike other states,
2: SA still doesn't offer subsidies for accumulative travel. I guess that that's what Pats is about, isn't it? Yeah. It's making it easier for country, for rural people. It's, it's, I guess it's equity. It's making us a little bit more in line with the city because in the city, when Bob did his um, trial of hemodialysis, We caught a taxi twice to the hemodialysis centre and we got taxi vouchers. And that that just doesn't add up, that we can't get anything when we've got the huge distance and the cost. And yet in the city they can get vouchers. So it's, it's about equity, it's about fairness to country people really.
7: We're not advocating just for ourselves, we're just advocating it for people in our situation that uh,
2: uh, might be worse off than we are. Um, I'm sure some on the far west coast are far worse off than, you know, Mm. they have such big distances to travel and higher fuel costs as well.
7: And some people um, have had to change their place of abode uh, to be nearer to a um, dialysis centre um, so that their costs aren't so, um, so high. Uh, which really doesn't make sense if you have to move to Adelaide uh, to a more expensive house.
0: For Bob and Jan Moulton, their only wish is to initiate change for other rural dialysis patients in South Australia.
1: And thanks to our reporter, Megan McLaughlin, for that story from Melrose in regional South Australia. As Brumby Culling resumes in Kosciuszko National Park, in southeast Queensland, the wild horse's potential has been put on display at a show just for Brumbies. Organisers want to show that Brumbies can make capable and loyal companions when given the chance. Tessa Mapstone has this story.
8: This is Russell. We've had him for about four years now. He came out of the Guy Fawkes River National Park my partner and I broke him in together as a bit of a COVID project, so that was good fun. Yeah, my partner actually learnt to ride on Rusty as we were breaking him in, so, you know, could have been a disaster, but it worked out really well. Well, and you're still together,
9: so obviously still together. It, it went really well. Yeah. Yep. This <laughs> is Ellie Sales. She and her horse Russell have driven six hours to take part in a special show just for Brumbies. We were really excited about it because it is
8: the first and only competition that I've ever heard of that is for Brumbies and I think that's
9: fantastic to sort of showcase their versatility and what they can do. The show's being held for the first time at Amamoor in south-east Queensland. It's hosted by Anna Urig, a horse trainer who teaches people how to tame and train Brumbies fresh from the wild.
10: We're aiming to bridge the gap between a wild horse that... Um, you know, doesn't want anything to do with you um, to you know, a partner that can then enter a show like this. Whatever you put them to, they'll, they'll nail it. So, we've had horses go on to be camp drafters, um, pony club ponies, trail riding horses, pretty much anything, and I think we saw that here today.
11: They're highly intelligent, usually, because they're naturally selected for their um, intelligence and their communication skills, and so they've got special characteristics which. In a lot of cases, we're breeding out of domestic horses, so uh, brumbies can be very special horses, and they can do really special things.
9: That's ecologist Dr David Berman. He runs a population management program trapping brumbies in a nearby state forest where wild horse numbers are booming.
11: Without catching and rehoming, the alternatives are uh, shooting and
12: us now possibly nothing works. would be you done at care. all
11: for a while and until there are the far storm. too many and someone got killed on the roads and then there'd be some shooting happening.
9: The Brumbies competing in the show today have come from as far away as central Queensland and the New South Wales mid-north coast. But most are local horses that David's trapped in Talara and Tuan State Forests.
11: It's wonderful to see horses that I've um, brought in from the wild and I've seen out there in the wild and caught them, uh, being led around by these wonderful people who have trained them and the horses, the partnership between the people and the horse is just wonderful. uh, They've got a new family.
9: This show's happening at a time when Brumby culls are a hot topic of conversation around the country. But the people here know there's another option.
10: You know, we're seeing it all over Australia that brumbies are needing homes and they're needing homes with people that can give them that training to make domestic life suitable for them so that's what we're really aiming to do is to get them from wild and unhandled to somewhere where we can enjoy them and have a partnership and you can clearly tell that they enjoy it too just really special to have that bond with a with a horse that's from the wild so and they're just they're tough you know so When they're they're broken in, when they're started, um, they'll do anything for you. Being able to see them in their new homes with their people and just being so amazing is just, yeah, it's a great feeling. And I think, you know, watching it all come to fruition on a day like today, it's just, it's really special.
9: It's a pretty special moment for Ellie and Russell too. They're taking home the blue ribbon for the Ridden Utility Course class. I think it would
8: be cool if people um, in the equestrian community became a little bit more open to brumbies as a horse. Uh, It would be good if they knew that they were not feral and crazy. They can actually be really quiet and great kids' ponies, and if you want them to, they can be quite competitive too. You can really do anything with them. They're so versatile. They're awesome little horses. He's quiet. He's a pleasure to take anywhere pretty much all the time. We often get compliments about how well-behaved he is at shows and stuff like that we've started competing in challenges this year and putting him on cattle and he's showing some promise there too so he's awesome he cost us $500 so I think he's a pretty good horse for 500 bucks <laughs> he's the first horse that comes up to you in the paddock um, doesn't matter if I've just ridden him for four hours the day before as soon as I walk into that paddock the next day he comes right up to me like hey what are we doing today so he's got that awesome awesome nature I think he's fantastic I will never buy another horse <laughs> I'll, I'll just get from <laughs>
1: Ending that story from Tessa Mapstone on Queensland's Sunshine Coast. Milan, Paris, New York and Coolgardie. that's right. When you think about the mining town of Coolgardie in the goldfields of Western Australia, you probably don't think about fashion. Our reporter, Julia Bertoglio, attended the Women's Dreaming Fashion Show for some high couture.
13: Mining and fashion don't always match. But for one night... The outback town of Coolgardie, 550 kilometers east of Perth, is forgetting high V's and hosting a very special fashion show.
8: All the way
11: yeah.
13: For the local girls, like 16-year-old Georgia Ray Thomas, it's a chance to be in the spotlight.
14: I think I've just grown up to want to be like the center of attention, so um, I'm just very confident. And I think that's a really good thing. I do like that um, um, a lot about myself. Literally just, yeah, go on stage, just smile. That's the only thing. Like, don't worry about anything else. Just smile and just be yourself and just be confident.
13: That's the lesson Georgia Ray wants to teach her younger sister, Josalia May.
14: So my sister, she's, like, not into, like, the modelling stuff. So this is, like, new to her. And, I don't know, being with her, like, by my side, it's, I don't know, it's great having her, seeing her going up on the stage and and stuff but it's amazing
13: on the cartwork Jasalia May shines I was nervous at first
14: but then when I went on the stage it was fine yeah it's nice
13: this collection is all about empowering women as Rose Mitchell the local woman who designed the collection Women's Dreaming explains
12: Women's Dreaming because we all like to look good we all want to make things happen and it gets women out and doing things which is what I do
13: The Barladon Nyungar artist used the artworks of local Aboriginal women to help create the 38 garments in the collection.
12: Even though we're not traditional owners of this this area, we've been able to work with other groups and the traditional owners to share and enjoy the culture of art. We had also a, a young girl did some work, like the painting in the background. Now that painting, not one of us spoke about it. We didn't say, oh, I'll do the tree or I'll do the moon or I'll do that. We just did the painting and it was just, it actually gave us goosebumps that four different people from the four different areas can come together, create an artwork and tell a story. It was, it gave us goosebumps.
13: The Thomas' sisters, who are young Wangatha women, are proud to show off local designs and their culture.
14: Proud. Proud Aboriginal girl. Um, yeah, it's just, and then having my nana, yeah, she's teaching me about like all Aboriginal stuff and it's just, yeah, I just like my culture a lot, love it. The event is to show off the Aboriginal art. It's like clothing that the ladies, Indigenous ladies, have handmade and we're here to show them off to everyone.
13: The outfits, including the prints, are entirely made locally.
12: We work in the visitor centre. And someone came in and said, what have you got with Coolgardie on it? And we had to say nothing. And it was like, OK, maybe I should start something. I made tea towels and stubby holders. And the rest is history, as they say. Didn't stop.
13: And Rose hopes the success of this collection will help other women in the mining town dream big
1: too. Do <laughs> you
13: think Coolgardie could
10: become a bit of a fashion hub? Why not? Why couldn't we be?
1: That was Julia Bertoglio speaking to Rose Mitchell and some of the models and attendees at the Women's Dreaming Fashion Show. And that winds up Australia-wide for this Monday. I'm Sinead Mangan. I hope you're having a lovely evening. Speak to you again tomorrow. Cheerio.